welcome back to another amazing episode of the best darn show on the internet, the Oversharing Show. We're really exciting, excited today about a returning guest. But before we get into that, I'm going to read today's quote, and Sharon, the lovely Sharon, is going to pull a card for us. Uh, so today's quote is, letting there be room for not knowing is the most important thing of all. When there's a big disappointment, we don't know if that's the end of the story. It may just be the beginning of a great adventure. Life is like that. We don't know anything. We call something bad. We call it good. But really, we just don't know. And that's by Pema Chodron. Or Pema Chodron. That's very apropos for today's discussion, I think. Yeah. But I'm going to pull a card from the Thoth deck. And it is... Ten of Cups, Satiety. Oh, lovely. Ten of Cups is a great... Did we... I feel like we pulled this for you la- last time we had you on, Chance. <laughs> I, this is crazy insane. It used a different, totally different deck. And You I, wouldn't believe how apropos that is to my life right now in right. ways that I'm not ready to talk about, but... Uh, You're so fine. I feel like I know, <laughs> but I'm not going to say anything. So... um <laughs> So yeah, you were you said that similarly back when we had you the last time, and um, you were like, "Yeah, it's great, everything's going well, blah blah blah. This is like wonderful life that I'm experiencing right now." Blah blah blah. So I'm pretty sure that's the card we pulled last time. Uh, we have to go find out. I'm, I will right. go- I'm looking right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I could probably find out more quickly if I open up my notes. But I'm pretty sure that that's the case. You know, one of the things that really led me into divination practices when I started exploring them, I Ching was my starting point before tarot. And it's still my favorite thing. What would happen was every time I would do uh, I, like I would just get a circle of people I was with to each take a card. And I noticed because I was keeping a journal of it that pretty much every time the previous draws uh, ending card which was kept showing up as the first card of the next circle of people <laughs> it happened over and over again it was really wow. cool that's insane uh come on where are you that's crazy old episode uh so episode i'm chance i'm the host of the 30... interverse podcast you can find it at interversepodcast.com i'm just gonna fill the space yeah. where you guys look yeah, for that other those notes my show, Interverse, you guys probably know about it, but if you haven't been uh, hip to what we do over there, it is one of the coolest nexuses of different things weaved together in a way that makes it all seem like one thing, which is we are researching language and the programming code of reality that is our <laughs> spoken word. We do so much syncretism of mythology and symbolism that can demonstrate some kind of ancient universal system that is the origin point of all the religions of the world. And we're definitely going to talk about that today. And also, I am an energy healer. I don't like to give myself the title of like healer, but that's the best quick description. I think we got into that pretty well and uh, thoroughly last time that I came on, but I do. I've been doing so many tunings for people. Uh, I, I say so many, not too much, just the right amount. <laughs> I, I don't like to, I'm not like a factory of, uh, you know, an assembly line of like, okay, next. I couldn't operate that way. So I, I usually do about three or four in a week. Uh, this week is kind of a big week. I've got five, which is more than I would normally take on, but I try to keep it to certain days of the week 
and only and only one in that day, if at all possible. That way it can really be about that person. Like my whole day kind of becomes about preparing energetically, being with them, and then sort of discharging <laughs> all the vibe of that. And the sessions have just been more and more incredible. The level of connection to intuition and my ability to pull together all the different tools at my disposal for each client has just gotten more and more succinct. And thus our results, I think, are getting even more good than last time we talked about it. So it's fun to be on that journey and feel like it's expanding in all directions and that it's actually, you know, I my motivation in life, believe it or not, I'm kind of like a dog. I just really want to be a good boy. And so the <laughs> feeling of helping that it's actually helping what we do together, me and the clients is it brings a little tear to my eye. Like I'm so happy about it. And uh, I've never been more in love with life than I am right now. And I'm super happy to be hanging out with you guys. Love it. And I found the episode, episode 35, and it was on October 10th of 2022. And we pulled the 10 of discs from the Morgan Greer deck from this deck. <laughs> okay. 10 Here. of cups and 10 so of discs. Was, yeah. Oh man. So basically like I'm hitting the completion level of material wealth, security and expansion. And then also on the emotional creative side, everything's just coming up, coming up 10. Yeah. Super into that. Amazing. And if you're a poker player, you got a pair of tens now. (laughs) Not a bad hand. Not Uh, bad at all. (laughs) XX. Yes, that too. The mystery of the X. And that's, that's in it. That's in it. All right, guys. So yeah. what are we doing here? So we have uh, Chance on. I was listening to an episode of Chance with Forbidden Knowledge News. And this was from a few weeks ago, I want to say. I can't remember exact date. And um, his topic about Gnosticism, his discussion. Actually, it was, this is crazy. It wasn't that. It happened before. He said something on some other place. I can't remember. And then I messaged him and I said, Hey, would you like to be back on to talk about Gnosticism? And then he's like, I'd love to. And then I guess the next day he recorded with this guy and he brought it up in that discussion. So I went to listen to it and I was like, I want more. <laughs> so he's like, no, we can definitely do more. So that's why we've brought him on to talk Gnosticism. Talking Gnosticism. All right, yeah. uh, Brandon, do you have anything you want to add to the introduction on this before I just kind of start unpacking? Well, I'll, I'll <laughs> just say I've what, from what I've learned and what I think I know, but uh, it, it seems that there's two different types of Gnosticism. When people are talking about Gnosticism, it's either A or B. And A is this uh, one that's like there's this demiurge and Yahweh is actually the devil and all this stuff. And then there's B who just looks at Gnosticism as this set of like ancient wisdom that you might be able to incorporate in your life or use or whatever. And a lot of times it gets confused one for the other. So I think it's one of those words that's kind of loaded, but that's about what I wanted to throw in. Well, that's very astute, man. It is exactly that. It's a loaded term. It uh, makes people either clutch their pearls and say, oh, Jesus, or it's like, like there's a lot of pearl clutching about Gnosticism. Um, <laughs> And so it really comes down to what we mean by that phrase. So if we are self-labeling ourselves as Gnostic, there's there's the simulation theory version of Gnosticism. <laughs> like the simulation theory is just a materialist version of 
this type of, in my opinion, twisted inverse Gnosticism. And we'll talk about what I mean by that. And then there's the type that I like, uh, the Marty Leeds Gnosticism, as I would call it, where he's showing you patterns that exist in nature and how they're talked about in scripture. And so at the end of the day, the word Gnostic means it refers to knowing, you know, like if I'm a Gnostic, I'm saying I know I have firsthand experiential knowledge is what knowing means. And so a lot of stuff that's passed off as Gnostic dogma or it's tricky because like we almost need a different word. So when we're for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to go over actually quite a few words that mean the same thing, historically speaking, and that might clear things up for everybody. So I guess to go there, I want to ask you guys, would you rather talk about some of the beliefs that are spread around and labeled Gnostic, or would you rather start with talking about where this came from and how it got to be what it is and then talk about the beliefs? I love that. The latter, like start with what you just said last. Start from the beginning, kind of, Ooh, right? I'm glad you chose Sharon because I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they both sound great. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, so going back way, 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 way back in time, there appears to be some sort of universal system of priestcraft that maybe is tied to architecture, megalith building, uh, seafaring, the fact that astrology or astronomy is so innately connected with and probably developed out of the necessity from navigation and agriculture. And so we don't know what this ancient universal system was, but we see the fingerprints of it across the world from Chichen Itza to uh, Bali. You know, we see elements and fingerprints in the form of rites and rituals and weird practices and specific beliefs and particularly calendrical systems that are actually consistent with each other in their mistakes that allow us to know, okay, you wouldn't, <laughs> there's too many things lining up as similar. And then last but definitely not least is the linguistic linkages, the fact that we see the same 17 letter alphabet used or sometimes 16 used between the ancient Greeks, the ancient Irish, the Phoenicians and many, many others. And then the, over in the Americas, when the new quote unquote new world was discovered, there is a gentleman, oh, I forget his name off the top of my head, uh, Lionel Wafer. Yes. Thank you. Memory. Lionel Wafer was this chap who was an Irishman who spoke the Highland language. I think somewhere in the 1600s wound up marooned in, with the Darien Indian tribe of the Mexico area. I don't know exactly where at there. And the, he's with the Darien tribe and finds out, oh, I can speak their language. He learned to communicate with them in a very short time because the Highland language the Irishmen spoke was almost identical. I mean, identical enough that they could talk to each other, him and the Darien people. So there were cognates definitely in the well, like words. statistically speaking, if you have more than about eight words that have that are a match between two languages, the odds of them not coming from a similar source and yeah. branching off are basically astronomical. And we're talking yeah. a lot of similar words because you yeah. can learn to speak their language in less yeah. than a month. I mean, it's it's a very fascinating story, the, the tale of Lionel Wafer. <laughs> and so this guy, he's over he's over there hanging out with them. They're eating potatoes and everything like super Irish 
<laughs> and uh, they're called the they're called the Darien Indians. Darien is basically the same word as Dorian, and the Dorian is a one of the tribes of, of the Hellenistic peoples. You know, it's their mm. style of Greek architecture, for example. Wow. So we know for sure that there's some stuff that is just out of the realm of mainstream historical narrative is just blows it all right out of the water something was somehow there was an interconnectivity between the peoples of the very very ancient world and why that interconnectivity was lost or what happened or maybe it was never lost these are all questions for aspiring researchers to try to dig into and find some evidential you know conclusions that will help us comprehend our ancestors but suffice to say there was a point and then that point happens to there's a fragmenting that goes on and a disconnect that goes on. And from there is where a story really picks up. And from there, I'm talking about the rise of Egypt as a major power center. And in fact, you know, what may have been going on is perhaps there has been a type of globalism for thousands of years and that. At certain points, that globalism, that corporation that is running the planet <laughs> ends up having a change of management, maybe some genocides, maybe something like that, a little this, a little that. And they wind up having to rebrand themselves under a different name and possibly replace the history of an area for a few hundred years during the genociding with some kind of mythos that resembles history, but is actually astrotheology, such as the first couple hundred years of Rome's history. Perfect example. Whatever Rome is, when the Roman Empire took over, it kind of looks like there was something already in place that just got rebranded. And maybe it was even centered in Italy. But that's another question. But taking <laughs> us over to when Egypt was at its height, you know, this this rise, The we've all heard of Alexandria, right? Right. So there's the Library of Alexandria. Christians get blamed for burning it down. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but what we don't really think about what was going on at this great Library of Alexandria. But there's a actually like a sort of college there. And this college is maybe the first example or the earliest one that we have any report of that looks the same as the current university system where you get your credentials and your doctorates and your degrees and et cetera. And now you're allowed to go practice whatever the thing you're trained in it, or anywhere in the world. And you have the reputation <clears throat> that goes along with the, the college that you're from. So who are these people in the college of Alexandria? This is where the Gnostics are. are <clears throat> this is where it's coming from and what they're. So I'm going to read a, a Reverend Robert Taylor quote here. The name, one of the names that we can give to the, I'm not quoting yet, but one of the names we can give to this group of priests at this college of Alexandria is the eclectics. And as he says, quote, their name of eclectics indicated that their divine philosophy was a collection of all the diverging rays of truth, which were scattered through the various systems of pagan and Jewish piety into one bright focus that their religion was made up of. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there that's were, a quote from Paul. Oh, my God. He's quoting Paul. Yes. Oh, OK. OK. okay. He's quoting Paul in this quote. Okay. <laughs> if there were any virtue and if there were any praise wherever found alike and different, whether it were derived from saint, from savage or from sage, Jehovah 
Jove or Lord. And why he's quoting Paul there is because Paul is one of these eclectics, yeah. <laughs> in my yeah. opinion. And mm-hmm. I think even um, it's possible that when the Vatican set up its shop and and whatever this Paulian Christianity is, possibly was something done outside of the purview of this Alexandrian college, like a say you know you you come from a corporation you work for them you got you got their rubber stamp or their logo that you're you know that's your authority and your credibility and then one day you're like you know what i don't want to pay the mob anymore i want to set up my own mob and i think that's polyan christianity i think is exactly that but why i read this quote is because we're talking about this important part of that quote i could have cut it off actually is their name of eclectics indicated that their divine philosophy was a collection of all the diverging rays of truth, which were scattered through the various systems of pagan and Jewish piety. And that is why it's eclectic. It So it's like there was some kind of universal system. It spread its way throughout the world and it, its fingerprints are extant in all the pagan systems. And then after, you know, the, original it's like it's kind of like the question of of technology now you know what what if in the near future humans don't even know how we designed all this crazy technology like the ai and the iphones and all that and they just kind of know how to keep it working but they don't know how it works and they're trying to reverse engineer it i think that that's basically what we're looking at with this gnosticism or these eclectics mm-hmm. and that this is also where the emergence of Christianity comes from, as I just alluded to. But just to read out a couple of the other names of different philosophical schools that are raised out of the same center of the library or College of Alexandria. One of their main names is the Therapeutes, and then the Essenes, mm-hmm. the Ascetics, big one, mm-hmm. I've heard of asceticism, mm-hmm. the monks, <clears throat> the ecclesiastics. The eclectics, the gymnosophists of India, the Cassadians, the Dionysians, the Eleusinians, the Pythagoreans, and the Chaldeans, to name a few. I mean, Gnostics are also part of that list. Yeah. Mandeans are part of that list. And I feel like I've been going for a little bit, so we'll let you guys jump on <laughs> if you need to say anything. Otherwise, I'll just roll through. Well, I did want to say um, when you were talking about Darien, there's a town in Connecticut. It's it's spelled D A R I E N. But if you're from Connecticut, you pronounce it Darien. Darien. <laughs> and uh, I know I only know because I had to go there. Or I mean I right, passed through it. Oh yeah, you got you drive right through it. It's right next to Greenwich um in Myanus, which I love to see. Jackass did a whole thing about Myanus, Connecticut. They like went there. Uh, but anyway, so I digress. But yeah, it's right next to Greenwich, which is like, you know, everybody knows that all the rich people live in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's freaking crazy. The house is out of there. Actually, shout out to Zerolath. He that's where he lives, too. Um, he's not crazy rich yet, but one day maybe. But um, I wonder if there's any correlation to the Darien and Greenwich thing and the Darien thing you're speaking of. I mean, there could be. Connecticut is not far as the crow flies from Ireland, is it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that there's a, quite a quite a big trail to follow uh, of peoples from the British Isles making their way over to the northeast coast of the United States. So that's for sure in the mix. And 
what's interesting is that the British Isles evidently seem to have been populated by whoever the Phoenicians were. And that's a, a side tangent, but, you know, I'm definitely trying to sort it all together. What was the previous system before it all kind of coalesced into these eclectics of Alexandria in Egypt? But there's something to zero in here on in terms of all those different titles. And the big one is the asceticism. Asceticism indicates severe disciplines and exercises of self-mortification, fasting, prayers, contemplation, not in of themselves all bad, except for the part where they chop off their cock and mm, balls, mm, which they definitely would do. Mm. They, they made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, and as did many of the church fathers of early Christianity. So there's that. Mm. <laughs> and why I want to hone in on the aestheticism is because I think that uh, I'll read a quote from Johann. I'll explain this after I read this quote. Johann Lorenz von Moschim said it was, and this is uh, from a long, long, long ago. I can't remember exactly when this guy was writing, but uh, 1500s or 1600s. And he says, in Egypt, the morose discipline of asceticism took its rise. And it is observable that that country has at all times as it were by an immutable law or disposition of nature abounded with persons of a melancholy complexion and produced in proportion to its extent, more gloomy spirits than any other parts of the world. It was here that the Essenes dwelt principally long before the coming of Christ. And why does this really matter? Uh, well, Eusebius, the father of ecclesiastical history, very early church father, he talked about Philo the Jew, uh, who has a work about the eclectics of the College of Alexandria. And he says that those ancient therapeutes were Christian, which is before Christ, and that their ancient writings were our gospels and epistles. So here's an admission from Eusebius that the gospels existed before Christ. So there's that. <laughs> That's <laughs> because funny. They're astrotheology. <clears throat> and so... There's a lot of elements to the therapeutes. You know, they were the doctors of the body and the mind. And I, I'm not like pointing the finger and saying they're the bad guys. They did. They messed up the world or anything like that. As with any group of people or any philosophy, there's going to be some good and some bad. And it's going to be all mixed up. But it's important to understand that if this doctrine of asceticism was a major component of the hub of spiritual teachers and uh, seekers that became the priestcraft or the priest class of the world and spread out from there, <laughs> if they're aesthetics, then they have this philosophy that the best people are the ones that suffer the most. <laughs> like uh, I'm suffering more than you, you know, like that's a spiritual ego much. <laughs> Seriously. And then it's no surprise that the eventual outcome of that with Christianity is a dogma that the best guy, our top hero, is the one that suffered the most and let the crowd kill him for everybody else's sake. It's basically communism. And I mean that literally because and this is even in the Bible talking about, you know, pick up when you when you follow the disciples or the apostles, you're supposed to give sell everything you own and give all your money to them and let them sort out who gets what. That's communism. <laughs> and mm. and then, you know, sacrifice yourself for the collective. Uh, if my my 
mask doesn't work unless you wear yours. All of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's like this is where our modern medical practice really has its roots, too, because these therapeutes were the doctors or healers of the time. And they probably had some good philosophies and they're probably putting leeches on people in a crazy way or whatever crazy stuff they might have been doing. They knew best. And they knew best. So as we get into the the philosophies underlying Gnosticism, which is actually just a big eclectic mix of things without exactly any kind of coherent thread or dogma to grasp onto, understand that why the philosophy of an evil God creating the world to trap the divine sparks of each of our souls in it and then loose us and juice us for our life force energy and make us slaves, that that belief is a perfect match to aestheticism because it means we are all trapped in suffering and that that suffering has something to do with our spiritual enlightenment. (laughs) Right. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. And then the whole, like uh, you're born in sin, you're, you're natural. Like, what is it like uh, original sin, that whole, like, mentality of original sin like babies are you're like babies are sinful like how (laughs) exactly it's it's crazy so you know this this is where i want to take a point to say as you explore any kind of scriptures or spiritual anything that claims spiritual claims to be spiritual like what does even spiritual mean it seems like that (laughs) word should refer to i don't know talking to spirits or connecting with spirits (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know what i would maybe define spirituality would would be as tapping into the prana or the chi or the life force energy that is the animating principle of the cosmos that which brings order and coherence to our reality innately and then that's inside you and not outside of you right it's inside of everything but it's like it's subtle and you can't see it anywhere outside you know it's always in everything yeah. So to me, that's spirituality. Like my my comprehension of God currently is that the life force energy animating all of our body vessels is God and that that's the inseparable all is one aspect of the universe. And it's that which brings order and coherence and makes things take shape and form in a way that works and can continue yeah. existence. So, you know, to me, that's what spirituality is. And other than that, it's learning about how this self-organizing principle that we call God in our universe, this innate intelligence, the self-existing power how that builds, like how does that make stuff? How does, so another way of putting it would be, how does nature make stuff? What is the proper order for things to go about? And so in the, the fractal, one of the great examples of that would be, well, you got spring and then you got summer and then you got fall and then you have winter and then you're back to spring. And it's kind of like math, or as the Egyptians called it, ma'at, divine order. And that ma'at, or that math, is an order of operations that nature actually will demonstrate anywhere and everywhere in which it builds and grows. So if we can, to go back to to these scriptures and doctrines that people will drink, like, uh, you know, special Kool-Aid, and just take it all in as the classic fallacy that mankind seems so prone to, authority being their truth rather than truth being the authority Mm. how we ought to in my opinion approach these things is with a extreme level of skepticism and that we shouldn't take on any belief or dogma 
and instead look at how does this allegorize nature that is observable or my own nature, my psychological nature, or the nature of how life forms, grows, and expands. And if we can find an interpretation of scriptures with some form of allegory or ideally allegory that comprehends and encompasses all of the above at the same time, then I think that we're in, we, we've attained something useful. We've got something good then. That's what mythos should do. That's what it's for. But if we're just believing fairy tales because the man in the dress told us that we had to or we go to the naughty bad place, what good is that to anybody? <laughs> you know, it's not good for any of us. And it makes like a twisted, deranged, churchian orthobros. Yeah. No offense to any specific religion because it exists in all of them. And then, you know, back yeah. to the therapeutes, um, there's a strong reason to believe that a big part of the origin of the therapeutes or the Essenes or the eclectics is Buddhism. Buddhism might be one of the oldest versions of this universal system that hung around. And so why is that important? Well, what's modern Buddhism's tenets that we're in samsara or maya, that the world is an illusion, you know, <laughs> to spend your life in solitude and contemplation and abstract yourself from the world. And that's how you find your dharma or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's so bizarre. And I'm not like painting all Buddhism with the same brush, but the way a lot of Buddhism gets played out is very similar to this whole like Gnostic simulation theory, everything's illusion nature and reality are fake and that there's some other world or some other place that is the real thing. And uh, I'm just not into that. I'm, I'm, I like it here. I think this is great. I think this is all for us. I think anyway, to get aside from my personal <laughs> philosophy, <laughs> it's important to make that connection that there's a, a Buddhism connection to all this, of course, as all the religions actually do seem to bottleneck through this university of Alexandria, where the, uh, as Robert Taylor says, Lazy monks and wily fanatics first found the benefit of clubbing together to keep the privileges and advantages of learning to themselves and concocting holy mysteries and inspired legends to be dealt out as the craft should need for the perpetuation of ignorance and superstition and consequently of the ascendancy of jugglers and Jesuits, holy hypocrites and reverend rogues among men. He just he's brutal about it. <laughs> I like wow. it. <laughs> I need to read me some Reverend Robert Taylor. I have yet to read that well oh, they put him in the books? they put him in the gale for all this right i think you probably want to check out the diegesis that might be a good place to start how do you spell that oh d-i-e-g-i-s-e-s -E -E i think okay something like that if you just look up reverend robert taylor you'll find some stuff yeah definitely for sure but uh yeah as you were talking about um like questioning things and not just taking people's words for it. Um, I read the Bible like cover to cover for a few years, um, a couple of years ago. And it really, like it really made me look at stuff and go, okay, that's weird. Why? Like, because there's just some really odd and crazy things in the Bible. So, you know, and there's good stuff in there too. Well, there's good stuff so too. So we just have to go in it with discernment and not as right. true believers. 
Absolutely. And so I found myself doing the wait. what is that about when I would see weird stuff, you know? And so, you know, I question, I started to question like circumcision, you know, and I was just like, well, what is that all about? And I just, I was also listening to beginning to listen to Crow at some point. And I remember him saying like, there's no lie in nature and like just hearing things like that and going, okay, wait, maybe I should look at nature and like, I'm like, well, do animals need to do that for any reason? I don't think so. So like, why would we like, were we made flawed? Like, why would God create a flawed individual and then make it cut something off of itself because it was wrong or bad or evil or whatever? Like that, that did not make sense to me. And so that's one of the major things that started my unraveling of like, just blindly believing that something was the word of God and untainted and un, you know, like you can't find an error in it and all that stuff. And I was like, wait a second. Yeah, Yeah, that's a, it's very astute. I mean, circumcision as a practice and original sin, it's like, it's, it's like indoctrinating you from the beginning that you're, you came in here wrong and we had to Mm -hmm. correct you and Mm -hmm. the legal system's predicated on correcting you. And when you really start to get to the roots of things, you see that the legal fiction system and the medical mafia and the religious dogmatism all and communism all wrap up into one nice little package where it seems like the same uh, force, if you will, has been pushing these things along and seemingly separate, but they've been connected from the start. And I think the connection is uh, vic- victims becoming perpetrators. Uh, wow. The cycle of victims becoming the perpetrator and then repeating and repeating and repeating. So I'm about, let's break that. Mm-hmm. You know, what would it be like if we started doing the right thing because we came from a place of love and support and encouragement rather than trauma and guilt making us want to oh, be good? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the trauma and guilt tripping doesn't work, people. Hello. (laughs) I mean, it's like obvious on the face of it. Like if you if your mom or dad told you thou shalt not X, Y, Z, what was the first thing you were going to try to do? X, Y, Z. You know, it's like. You the the thou the negative reinforcement doesn't work very well. (laughs) Another fun quote from Taylor before we move on through this, he says, the therapeutes of Egypt from whom are descended the vagrant hordes of Jews and gypsies had well found by what arts mankind were to be cajoled. (laughs) Holy smokes. (laughs) So there's a lot of motivation to conceal all of this, uh, the origins of all this to keep, you know, your cult working out properly. But then what ends up happening is they're after this, you know, imposing upon everyone that the priest class has done where they had to hold, keep up their, you know, when I say imposing, I mean like they're imposters in terms of them pulling themselves up as ecclesiastics, which means called out or chosen by God. It's no different than divine right of kings. And Mm. in fact, like priests priests and kings went hand in hand in a lot of the ancient world 
that being said, I actually think that uh, a benevolent monarchy might actually be the best form of organization of a society, as long as it stayed in a small scale, like not huge, not like the king of a continent, but, you know, in a regional sense, um, that, that could actually be really good, <laughs> to be honest. But that's a, that aside. Like Marcus um, Aurelius? <laughs> well, I like his writings. I don't know if he was actually cool. But he, <laughs> when you look at that, though, they are the the uh, Stoics. Stoics. Stoicism has a lot of of roots and similarities to asceticism, actually, when you think about it. And to be fair, asceticism isn't all bad. Like being able to be comfortable with less and to be happy with what you have all that is fine, but it's also a great philosophy to impose on people that you want to keep your boot on their neck and then not ever want to rise up higher. Mm -hmm. But with like Marcus Aurelius, I'm pretty sure it was him who had a practice of like one month out of the year wearing rags and eating just rice and beans or something like that, just so he could constantly be reminded that he could do, he would be fine even if he didn't have his wealth. I think that's kind of cool. So that's not like every, and it's like with all of this stuff, we're not throwing out baby with bathwater per se, but we want to look at how the reason why all this deception around the literal historicity of obvious mythology has gotten so powerful. I think it's because the, you know, this class of people that we call the, the priests have become the dupes of their own deception. They don't remember, they don't have the knowledge of the, the, where the, you know, they've been infected by credulity in a sense, you know, they're, they're gullible to the the thing too. And so it makes it that much more insidious in a way, because we have, we all kind of have a feeling like we can tell when somebody's lying, but it's like that. I may be wrong, but I'm not lying. A lot of the people that are now like religious leaders, they're wrong, but they're not lying per se. I mean, if they went and looked further and deeper, they would have to come to their senses and admit that they have been lying or they've been wrong, like Robert Taylor did. And he wound up in jail for that, actually. (laughs) So that was back then. You know, now we don't have the threat of jail for telling the truth yet. And maybe we should get into it before we do end up with the threat of jail for telling the truth. But anyway, (laughs) the, the thing about this University of Alexandria is that they would give credentials like a college and set people out to go and be apostles. That's actually what an apostle meant is that you sent one. Yeah. It was sent. Yes. She gets it. Yes. (laughs) She's getting it. (laughs) That's why we named the show after her. She gets it. (laughs) (laughs) She's totally getting it. (laughs) One thing I wanted to uh, say really quickly was I'm seeing a common theme here when you were talking before about the mythology and then even when you're talking about like the ascetics and they're not terrible, what I see is kind of maybe crossing the border into bad uh, is when they take this ideology, whether it's mythology or whatever it is, and they put it on a pedestal and they try to worship it. I see that. Whereas you could just take this mythology and like you were saying, learn allegorically what it could mean for you and how it can make your life better. And then you can actually live by it. And then a lot of people just can't make that distinction but I think that's what happens like just in with the dogma. That's really what dogma is. It's like taking the mythology and making it your God and worshiping it. And it can't be wrong. It's infallible. No matter what it says, I have to follow and boxing it. yourself into it. Yeah. Whereas you could just take a Bible and look at it allegorically. And it's a really good, like even the path of Christ is a good 
way to follow it. But then if you take it to any extreme and start worshiping it, it's where you run into trouble. And I think that comes from a victim mindset. A victim needs a, a somebody to put in a pit and somebody to put in a pedestal because they can't be their fault. So they need a scapegoat and then they also need a hero. That is very well said. And that's what this really boils down to. That's why we get this Rex Mundi demiurge evil God thing. You're not the real God. (laughs) You're secretly actually the devil. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Cause and okay. So I think it's good to get into, to, um, what Gnostics profess now in the modern time or, Actually, you know, maybe we can touch on that Anacalypsis quote from Higgin, Godfrey Higgins, that you said you liked. Yes. Okay. So up right up there with the Know Thyself at the Oracle of Delphi, I believe they also had a inscription saying something like certainty brings ruin. And that's part of this too, is like if you're claiming to know Nastishi, being a Gnostic. That ends up bringing some major ruin, especially because you're cl- like they're claiming to know some stuff that is not helpful at all. But what Godfrey Higgins has to say that we wanted to cover off is of the sayings of the wise men, there was not one probably more wise than that of the celebrated know thyself. And probably there was not one to which so little regard has been paid. It is to the want of attention to this principle that I attribute most of the absurdities with which the wise and learned, perhaps in all ages, may be reproached. Mm. Well, man has forgotten or been ignorant that his faculties are limited. He has failed to mark the line of demarcation beyond which his knowledge could not extend. Instead of applying his mind to objects cognizable by his senses, he has attempted subjects above the reach of the human mind (laughs) and has lost and bewildered himself in the mazes of metaphysics. He has not known or has not attended to what has been so clearly proved by Locke that no idea can be received except through the medium of the senses. He has endeavored to form ideas without attending to this principle, and as might well be expected, he has run into the greatest absurdities, the necessary consequence of such imprudence. So I think we all get what he's saying there, but we're talking about how much of people's religious beliefs are so far beyond the scope of what you could know. (laughs) Yeah. And then so now we can just apply that believing in things that you have no way to know as that that is what religious beliefs are, even if people aren't painting that as religious. So that's what makes the science trademark a religion claiming to know things you can't know all over the place that's happening. And I think it's Goethe that said something along the lines of the senses do not deceive us, but our judgments do. Mm. I could be paraphrasing that incorrectly. But that's essentially what we're at here. And I like metaphysical talk. I like metaphysical speculation. And I think that there are some big ideas about the structure of reality and what happens after we die and things that you would consider metaphysics 
that you can infer from nature's pattern, from the way nature builds things, the order of operations of that math, that math. But it doesn't mean you can know it. <laughs> it becomes a healthy, educated guess, but it doesn't mean you can know it. And so this applies to all kinds of things that people have taken on as beliefs that at best is coming from an individual's subjective experience, which I do not discount. And I don't discount someone who knows for themselves something that we all can't know. That's fine. But it doesn't mean that that gets to be made into a religious dogma that everyone else has to believe because you're the special one mm -hmm. or whatever. So I hope that we're clear on that, that it's not like I'm ruling out any value in philosophy or metaphysics, but that, or saying that there's nothing to, to life or existence, but the physical, but the truth is the only things that we can lay down as law are things that are cognizable by our senses that we can all see, touch, taste, feel, et cetera. You know, I feel like that's totally reasonable. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why I really like that quote. You know, yeah. I'm reminded of uh, just really quickly, Sharon, I'm just reminded of that. I think it's a Buddhist saying <laughs> where it's like a spiritual teacher is like a finger pointing at the moon. And it's like they say something like, don't don't get fixated on the finger. It's the same thing, I think, with this mythology and this story. It's like a finger. It's like a it's it's a it's a way pointing. But don't get focused on that itself. You know, it's like, what is it pointing toward kind of thing? Exactly. And that applies to all of the savior mythos out there too it's pointing to you to what it's pointing at is you <laughs> it's saying that this is inside you and where i think what we just described this maze of metaphysics that humanity has bewildered itself with is where we get this idea of uh simulation why why is it so easy for people to believe that we live in a simulation or an artificial reality? <clears throat> why do you think it's so easy for people to believe that? I'll ask you guys first. Go ahead, Sharon. Um I guess like in now in these days, I would answer that with saying that people like have seen video games and have seen movies like Avatar and things like that. And so it's easy for them to and, and matrix and stuff, it's easy for them to feel like it could be so here because then they start using words like, oh, he's an NPC or he's this, that, and the other. Um, and because he's acting a certain way. And so they have these things that are relatable to these uh, video games that are not real. Right. And so they're like, oh, if, so if that's kind of like that, well, why isn't it, why isn't this life like like that either yeah i love that and then i would i would like to add i also think it's that and it's the fact that if it is a simulation then guess what it doesn't matter i don't gotta do shit i don't gotta take personal responsibility it ain't my fault if it's a simulation i'm fucking in jail and then i you know then what sharon <laughs> said too it's like the two pillars yeah that's so accurate if this is yeah and people are living like they're in jail a lot of people are living like they're in jail like, <laughs> I, I'm not free to do anything, even though we're all free to do everything, pretty much. I mean, that is that is moral and right. Right. Uh, our freedoms well, we're are We're even are free vast. to do what's not moral and right. And that we're just we shouldn't do it, I think. But, you know, it's crazy. This realm, you could just basically really do whatever you want. I mean, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a true story. You really can. I mean, the only caveat to that is there are cause and effect to it. Oh, yeah. Consequences, <laughs> hermetic principles, people. And why I said, you know, free to do what is what is good or right, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't mean there's anything you're supposed to do per se. It just means that don't there are certain things not to do. So it's like the apophatic method of knowing truth. Truth is everything, tr- everything that exists. So you cannot describe it or define it in a way that actually wraps your arms around truth and you, you know the circumference and exactly what it all is. Same with God. So we can really only describe the infinite by what it is not. And mm-hmm. so... That's uh, the same goes for our rights. You know, basically we have the right to do literally anything, but if we, there's a few things that we can describe as we don't have the right to do it because there's a obvious and self-evident consequence to the behavior that will eventually impede our ability to do the behavior. (laughs) And that's morality. Hello. Mm -hmm. It's baked into the whole thing. Morality is baked into existence. Yeah. And it's funny how when you keep doing what you're not supposed to do or whatever, you just is you're like in a cycle and things keep slapping you. And sometimes they escalate to a point where then you just don't want to do it anymore. You learn from it's like a, an infant or a child touching a stove. He knows no more, you know, or she knows no more. I'm not going to touch that anymore. And I think that's what the true knowing is. And that's what Sharon and I talk about so much when, you know, it says in the Bible, like Adam knew Eve. It meant like he knew her, you know, like he he got. He knew her. And uh, it's the same thing with experience. Sometimes you have to you're stuck in these cycles. Sometimes they manifest as like addictions or drug addictions. But I see what I'd like to say about that is if you're in one of these cycles, because I think we all are to some degree. That's why we're here. Probably maybe it's that I've learned to just not be hard on yourself for it. You know, it's like sometimes you just got to murder babies. No, um, but whatever your uh, your addiction or whatever it is. You got to kind of start where you are and being hard on yourself kind of perpetuates that because then what I've noticed is when you're hard on yourself, then you want to do that addictive behavior more to escape that uh, guilt or hate you have for yourself. So, yeah, Um, I was going to bring up that scripture in Romans 215 that says that like because chance was saying it's baked in. And it's basically saying, I think this Paul who wrote this, but they show that the essential requirements of the law are written in their hearts and their conscience, their sense of right and wrong, their moral choices, bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or perhaps defending them. So it's basically saying that this is for everyone, like you know when you're doing something wrong. Like maybe over time you shut it off because you've been doing this activity for so long and you've shut it off that you're doing something wrong and maybe your body finally says, okay, fine, I'm not going to warn or tell you anymore. But it doesn't happen overnight. Like you, like if you're going to be a sociopath or 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 something like that, like I don't think that stuff happens overnight. You you have allowed that to continue to happen and you've allowed that to go on and on and on and you've lied to yourself. Um, but you know that you're wrong at some point. You knew that you were wrong about what you were doing, whatever it is. What's you know my soul, Sharon. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say it's interesting how our outer world mimics and mirrors our inner world to the extent where that type of uh, aberrant behavior 
becomes easier to self-justify in this weird slippery slope to the dark side because as you're shitty shittier and shittier the world gets shittier and shittier and you're like they deserve it so you know that's like spiraling spiraling are we spiraling up or are we spiraling down because as the same goes in the positive direction as you get more coherent your world gets more coherent and you get more appreciation for it and you get you know more and then you get more harmonious from that and it's like you got to get pretty serious about that how nature operates there is no stasis you're either spiraling up or spiraling down and so the trick is catching yourself in the act. And even if it's hard to switch the momentum, you can at least slow the slow the momentum down and stop being on the downward spiral. Even if you have to feel like you're clawing on the upward spiral and it's slow going, it's all about the direction you're oriented, in my opinion. And so the world currently, though, is oriented in uh, the direction towards this belief in simulation. And the Baudrillard quote about it, uh, hyper-reality, is a good way to understand it, where he talks about the media representing the world that is more real than the reality that we can experience. The media. Media, by the way, is uh, <laughs> in mythology, the media character is uh, the evil witch who like curses Jason and kills his children who were actually her own children. She kills her own babies just to get at him. <laughs> so there's that, but... At Baudrillard in Simulacra and Simulation, a book that actually shows up in the Matrix movie and is largely uh, that movie is a misinterpretation, of, in my opinion, of Baudrillard. He says, continuing, people lose the ability to distinguish between reality and fantasy. They begin to engage with the fantasy without realizing what it really is. They seek happiness and fulfillment through the simulacra of reality, which is media, and avoid contact or interaction with the real world. So this is a perfect way to comprehend how we got to such an easy widespread belief of a fallen world, even before media in the electronic sense, because mythos is media. Someone telling you a story around the campfire is a form of media, believe it or not. And so, so if you're believing it as literally true, even though it goes against everything you've ever witnessed in the real world, you know, like uh, a, an immaculate conception, for example, you've never seen it happen, but you're willing to believe that it happened. Well, you stack up enough of those things or like, you know, the the globe, you believe in it, you believe in outer space and other planets, even though you've never actually got any experiential reason in nature to believe in that or you know all of these things and you stacking up stack them up stack them up all this bullshit and eventually your world the physical natural world that you cannot ever leave you never separate from nature you're always in it there's only one place to be and that's existence there's no other place you can possibly be well it starts to feel unreal because it does not match with the overlay that your perceptions have been painted with i.e the you know, the belief system, the BS. So this is making sense. Like we, yeah. we are seeing more and more simulation theory believers because the world feels fake to people who believe that a bunch of stuff that isn't true about the world. You see what I mean? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I haven't really watched any TV or movies in the past, like three years, you know, a little bit. Cause I'm crashing with my parents and they're into like these crazy shows. But anyway, um, I don't want, I just will walk by the room, but 
I feel like that's really why I have this different. Everyone's like, oh, you're always so like happy and like, uh, you know, you have this high vibration or whatever. But I think it's because I'm in the real world. Like I go hiking all the time in the woods. You know, I've traveled last year. I traveled around the whole country with my two cats and my uh, Tahoe. And I went and saw Sharon. But everywhere I went, and this is what I want to say to your point, everywhere I went, people were just happy, having a good time. You know, I mean, there wasn't what you see on the news with all this crazy stuff. And I think that's really what uh, they've accomplished is they just built this or whoever this fake world was built. Um, and people are believing in that more than they are in the in the in nature. That's amazing. And when did he when did he write that book? Audriard's book. I don't remember where simulation or simulacra and simulation or whatever that very famous book i don't remember the year we'd have to do google it might have been like the the 90s or something Uh, it's not that it's not that old i don't think so he was pretty much on the cutting edge and yeah the matrix is just like an inversion of that uh book i would say then maybe well well yeah there's definitely elements of it um and what you just said though i really like what you just said about you're not you're connected with the real world you're it you don't have this fake overlay of media as strong as other people or at the very least when you do encounter it you don't believe it <laughs> so yeah, yeah. and look at you man i don't know exactly how older you are but i think you're like a decent amount older than me but you look young you know you yeah, look way younger you got it, a lot of you got a glow to you there's definitely something you. to it i think it's because i'm an elf uh part elf on my dad's <laughs> side um no, I'll be I'll be actually I'll be in this realm for 47 years in uh, less than a month. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't believe in myself either sometimes, but <laughs> you could easily pass for like 32 or 33. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty great. Awesome. I get away with maybe a lot it's just maybe Zoom is touching up your appearance. Are you faking us out right now? Are you know, it, it happens in real life. I'm a wedding DJ and people are always come talk to me. And once I they realize how old I am, they're just like, what? And, and I'm six <laughs> five, so I'm a giant. They just they don't get it. I'm like I'm a giant. I live longer. I'm still <laughs> my uh. Yeah, it's I. Uh, I knew there's good reason I liked you. I'm I like <laughs> tall people, right? Yeah, there's just something all about of us. Owen's rhetoric it. about height supremacy. The yeah. more that I took that on, I was like, it's true. It's real. There's something about it. It's funny because uh, to switch topics really quick, my whole life, I feel like people have been and I used to fall prey to this. They would kind of uh, make me feel like I was less than I am. They would like talk down or whatever it was. I mean, I've had some good friends that weren't like that, but I've had that or people would try to make me seem like a make me feel like I'm not as smart as I really am because I had some really important questions, you know, like in science when I'm like, what's solar wind? If it's a vacuum, how is there solar wind? You know, and they're just like, shut up, Brandon. Uh, but I, I feel like that's really what it is. There's some people who, for whatever reason, they want to be tall and they just kind of take it out on tall people as if it's our fault, you know, like. I, I, to distill it down really, I, uh, really s- simply, I had a friend growing up and he was shorter and we used to play basketball and he would just get mad at me because I was so tall and he was like better. He's like, if I had your height, I'd be in the NBA, you know, and it's like, is that my fault? So, uh, yeah, I think there's just something about tall people where we don't have that. We're just kind of more like, yeah, everybody digs us because we're tall. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, to switch back to Baudrillard real quick, (laughs) I just went to Amazon real quick and found the book. At least this version um, was from 1994, December 22nd, 94. That's when I joined the Marine Corps. What a synchronicity. Ooh. Well, 94 in December, I was already in. Yeah. 
but anyway. Yeah, so I, it's not even that long before The Matrix came out. Oh, yeah, it's true. That and makes then they, so they much put, sense, They though. slipped that book into the movie when Neo is giving the illegal software to the, you know, random punk punk uh, techno people, and then they're like, follow us, and she's got the white rabbit tattoo. The book that is a hollowed out shell where he's hiding the oh, illegal yeah. software, it, on the cover, it's simulation and simulacra. Wow, and they hollowed it out in the movie. Whoa. It's a, a fake sim- book. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's your clue. Holy... <laughs> It is pretty amazing because we I, we've talked about realm theory at length and I and I'm and what I tell people uh, about simulation is it's like si- simulation theory. I like the part where it's like the spiritual part or like the non-physical, like we're in this realm and we got to do this stuff. But then once they say there's like a body plugged in outside, I'm like, nah, man, <laughs> you, you were so close. Like we're. We're probably just energy, you know, and if we were uh, having a physical experience, it would feel like a computer simulation. But I don't think we have a body plugged in on the outside. Well, Um, let's actually clear up even what does simulation mean and why do we why would we want to maybe avoid painting our experience of life with that particular word? (laughs) So, first of all, (laughs) when it comes to the science trademark, especially astrophysics, physics, most of what is claimed to be known by science in its current level and what advances they claim to have been made is not actually science because science requires by definition to be dealing with things that exist in nature and the natural world. But what most science is now, and especially astrophysics, is they are plugging in formulae and calculations into a computer and simulating something and then saying, Oh my gosh, the universe operates exactly like a computer program. Look, look here, I figured it out. Here's my simulation that explains gravity. And so a lot of the science trademark is simulations in and of itself in terms of what we consider a mo- like that word to mean in modern tense, which is like a, a program or something, right? <laughs> or, or, or something artificial. And artificial is a correct way to consider it, but Simulation. Let's just go back to the American Dictionary of the English Language by old Noah Webster in 1828, back when words hadn't quite been wokeified so much or or whatever. Manipulated. Manipulated. Yeah, because the changing of definitions has been going on for a while. So that's why I like to go back to uh, roots where we're getting more of a connection to the Latin originals. So simulation, which is a Latin word, actually, it's spelled exactly the same way. It is the act of feigning to be that which is not. The assumption of a (laughs) deceitful appearance or character. Simulation differs from dissimulation. The former denotes the assuming of a false character. The latter denotes the concealment of the true character. Both are comprehended in the word hypocrisy. (laughs) (laughs) So simulation, to just boil it down, it means hypocrisy. And didn't hypocrisy or hypocrite in the Greek really, didn't it mean like uh, an actor who was in a play? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Go on. Who who were these actors? Who Who were the actors, though? 
They were the priests. <laughs> oh, snap. The priests were the actors, baby. Holy smokes. They were the hypocrites. But oh, guess who else were the hypocrites? We've all have we all heard of Hippocrates? Yes, I remember. I was going to say that sounds like Hippocrates. The Hippocratic Oath that yeah. the medical establishment takes. Yeah. So, wow, we just found that hypocrisy is right in the core of uh, medicine. Whoa. Then, <laughs> then you had the hippopotamus with... Uh, <laughs> No, no, I know it sounds like a joke. It was going to be a joke, but then I remember the hippopotamus with uh, Terat or uh, the tarot. What, what, uh, there was a hippopotamus god, I think, in um, in Egypt. So oh. I think yeah. it's Tower Tower Wet, maybe. Yeah. I'll anyway, the <laughs> important thing though is that simulation is hypocrisy, and so we have. Hypocrisy in the sense or simulation means feigning to be that which you're not. Mm. How many people in the world today get up every day and pretend to be something that they're not Mm. till 5 p.m. And then they come home and they're like, man, I hated doing that, but Mm. I got to do it tomorrow. Mm. So if your life experience, your lived daily life experience is in a sense simulation, you know, I got to talk to these customers. I got to pretend like I care. I got to pretend like I like them, you know so much simulation that it's coming out your ears. Is it that hard to, uh, to conceive of the world around you starting to take on the shape and form of a simulation that everything, you know, and then dissimulation is even more of a great word. It's, uh, uh, it's actually in the Bible simulation isn't, but in the Romans 12, nine, it says, let love be without dissimulation. <laughs> and that means dissimulation is hiding your true self. So love should not hide its true self. Mm. You shouldn't hide love. I like that. And, and Noah Webster, he says that simul- dissimulation, hiding under a false appearance, uh, includes the assumption of a false or counterfeit appearance, which conceals the real opinions or purpose dissimulation among statesmen is sometimes regarded as a necessary vice <laughs> or as no vice at all. I just thought that was funny. So that's why I wanted to mm. kick that in. No Webster. Wow. Him in there. <laughs> Dude, no wow. Webster was awesome. That guy was awesome. I think his house is here in Connecticut. Actually, I should go visit it. I mean, I don't know if he was really a good dude, but uh, it's a great service he did to the world to give us this def- book of definitions. Is it though? Because it's interesting how Right. It, it how we have landed on like official spellings of things when before that there was no such there really thing. Weren't. Yeah, it was more about the phonetics, right? Which, which that's a whole side weave, but right. we should get into the uh, the doctrine of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is Gnosticism? Yes, and apart from the fact that like all of this mythos is based on constellation writing with the scripture and the stars, uh, which is its own conversation, astrotheology. Gnostic, the Latin Gnosticus to know they are, according back to Webster's 1828, a sect of philosophers that arose in the first ages of Christianity who pretended they were the only men who had a true knowledge of the Christian religion. They formed for themselves a system of theology agreeable to the philosophy of Pythagoras and Plato. By the way, the eclectics, they love Plato to whom they accommodated their interpretations of scripture. They held that all natures, intelligible, intellectual, and material, are derived by successive emanations from the infinite fountain of deity. 
These emanations are called aeons. These doctrines were derived from the Oriental philosophy. Well, uh, in the analysis of Egyptian mysteries by Dr. Pritchard, he says the oldest doctrine of the Eastern schools is the system of emanations and the Trinity emanations. So this is like, basically, if, if you guys know much about Kabbalah and the tree of life, that there's the Ein Sof or the, the great beyond the, the, the light, the eternal white light of source or what have you. And then there's successive emanations or layers that like concentric circles come from that. And that each of these emanations gives us an aspect of, of being now, I'm not claiming that this is all accurate philosophy, but this is at the core of all of these mythoses is a doctrine of emanations. <clears throat> and so where do we get our idea of Gnosticism as the modern flavor? More or less what we think we know about the Gnostic story as it is claimed to sort of be its own thing separate from all of the, you know, the mainstream would say it's its own thing separate from all these other titles of, you know, Mandeans and eclectics and Essenes and gymnosophists and et cetera, that big list I gave at the beginning. Well, this is coming from the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which are written in Coptic found in Egypt in 1945. That should raise Red flags. <laughs> when it's that recent, there should be red flags raised. Not that nothing can be newly discovered, but forgery, especially since about the mid 1800s, forgery has just gotten more and more rampant as more or less kind of like related to the university system, how it operates, where you're only going to get your tenure and your, you know, your credit your authority within that system. If you find the discovery that supports the status quo narrative about whatever your field is, but that aside, assuming they're not forgeries, which I, I could go either way. I don't know. I mean, the, the it, it, it writes like, uh, like it was part of the eclectic philosophy. So maybe it's not a forgery, but why I would think that, I guess why I would be suspicious of it, I should say, is that the original translations of the Nag Hammadi scriptures were prepared for the Coptic Gnostic Library Project of the Institute for Antiquity and Christianity by UNESCO, the <laughs> United Nations? What are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little sus now, you know, like United oh Nations. Gosh. Oh, shit. I'm like the Loch Ness Monster that Chef's uh, dad would always find getting 350. They're like everywhere, the UN. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, UNESCO. So there's that. So who knows? I mean, we don't know. We'll just leave it at that. But Nag Can I, can I, can yeah, I yeah. ask a quick question? When you first started talking about this, you said... um you were talking about something and I'm and I was thinking, what was that time frame? Because was it before Jesus or was it like after Jesus that those things were happening? Which which things are we talking about uh, when you first started this conversation? I forgot what you were saying about it, but when I was describing the College of Alexandria and the therapeutes yeah. and the Essenes yeah. and the eclectics. Yeah. Before Christ, before Jesus. Yet, according to Eusebius, the father of ecclesiastical history, <laughs> these therapeutes had all of 
the doc they were Christians somehow, and they had all the doctrines of before Christ. They were Christians before Christ, people. Uh oh. Uh oh. And you know, the thing about the word Christian is it's like totally a corruption of a, a different word. Mm. The original word for Christian was Cres, Christianoi, which means good. We're talking about whenever. So do you want to be labeled as a a Christian or I would rather be a Christian personally? That means a good man. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm about that. That's fine. I want to be good. I I really do. But that's where it comes from. And it's an ancient, a, a much more ancient concept, especially when you get into the uh, he, ro, that X and uh, the X and the R, the X mm. and the Greek ro, which looks mm-hmm. like a P, yeah. uh, the prescription symbol mm. actually mm-hmm. <laughs> comes from yeah. this. The he, ro comes from uh, a Greek phrase about, it's so interesting, man. This is a huge rabbit hole, but mm-hmm. the Greek word heratonia means ojero. It means hand stretching, or it's the laying on of hands, invoking the Holy Spirit for blessings. And it's spelled with the beginning, just like the he ro, which is the symbol or monogram of Christ, looks like an X with a P coming out the top. And that is the same phonetics as Cairo, as in Egypt, or Chiron, the teacher in Greek mythology, the centaur, or Charon, the ferryman of souls across the river Styx. Chiropracti, uh, hero as in hieroglyphics, like hero meaning sacred, which is actually the root of the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem, hero, mm-hmm. sacred. Mm-hmm. So this is hand laying on of hands, hand stretching. And uh, that oh, sounds man. like energy healing to me right there. Oh, it is. You've heard of Reiki, right? Yeah. Reiki is key row backwards. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but that's all the way over in Japan. There's no connection. Jesus <laughs> uh, and uh, a a crestirion is a sacrificial victim or an oracle. Mm. The staff of Osiris was called crestirion. So crestirion, crestirion. Anyway, there's a lot to it. Uh, and this is where we get the RX symbol, though. To you know, mm. to put a cap in that. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Christ before Christ. It's fascinating. Actually, like looking in a, a good trail for that is uh, looking into the founding of Antioch, which is in modern day Turkey, where they had the worship of Jupiter Batius. Batius is philologically Buddha, as in T and D interchange, and the vowels interchange easily mm-hmm. between languages. Mm-hmm. So Jupiter Budius, basically. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> but the point of bringing up Antioch, to put it in a nutshell, is that essentially, uh, I feel like I need to go get my Anacalypsis book and just quote out of it. But essentially, like to put it in a nutshell from memory here, the... Uh, founding of that city was revolving around this idea of the uh, the seculum and the seculum it has to do with like the world age and at each seculum or age there would be a new incarnation of the proto protogonos the firstborn of the first cause the son of god 
basically. And the guy who supposedly found uh, Antioch was named Seleucum, which is basically Seculum. (laughs) (laughs) And there was this uh, kind of a problem, historically speaking, because the Jews that lived in that area were calling him Antichrist. But this was before Christ. Why would that be? (laughs) What? I thought there wasn't a Jesus Christ yet. theology. Well, exactly, because anti just means like a replacement or the next one. So as a vicar of Christ, the Pope is literally the Antichrist (laughs) by definition. (laughs) I'm not saying anything mystical here. It just is what it is. But I'm going to get off of that side side weave and back into the Nag Hammadi. So, So Nag means serpent as in like the hebrew word nakash or the Mm -hmm. brazen serpent yeah and the nagas of the hindi mythology so naga is a serpent or the watchers and then ham means black or darkness and then mad is other than like madre like you know mother dame it's also got the phonetics for make uh like madi made make it's very close but anyway, as I see, what I see when I look at Nag Hammadi, I see serp, black serpent, serpent mothers <laughs> or or the serpent watcher, black maker mother, something like that. You know, it's all Reminds kind of wrapped me up. of Michael Tessarian's. Oh, I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, I, I love me some Tessarian. Uh, he's the one that first got me suspicious of Gnosticism overall, because he brings up some really good points like. Uh, why if you know we haven't really covered off the Gnostic doctrine, but like in a nutshell, the Sophia is the goddess of wisdom. She's one of the original emanations from the Godhead, and then she decides to create without a to reproduce in a sense without uh, permission or without the the male component. So kind of parthenogenesis type of idea, or like a hermaphroditic idea, as in like hermaphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite with a beard, like all of that is in the mythos of the ancient world. Soph meaning wisdom in the Greek. And so she's the goddess of wisdom. And in fact, the goddesses of wisdom are a big part of the mystery, whether it's Pallas Athena, Pallas meaning wisdom. Also, she's called Minerva, uh, Metis, like Baphomet. Metis. Metis is a Greek word for wisdom. Uh, Maya, Arche. Or Mary Arche, a title for Mary, and she's Arche means head or wisdom. Uh, it goes on and on, but there's a lot of these mother goddesses: Isis, Sashat, Saraswati, Savruti. All of them have this title of being the bestowers of speech, writing, knowledge, being the first mother or the mother of God. So, goddesses of wisdom are a thing, it's, and it's a neglected thing. So when they're calling this goddess Sophia, where the sort of special boy orthodox interpretation of this would be like, there's really a Sophia <clears throat> and she's the real goddess. The fact is this name is just a title and all of the names of the gods and goddesses are really more of a title describing their function. And so Sophia, it means wisdom. So they're just referring to the concept of wisdom and it's, you know, later down the line, people becoming dupes, of their own deception trying to spread this as like a dogma so sophia just means wisdom so it's referring to all the versions of this goddess of wisdom it's not its own unique thing and then she gives birth through this uh 
abortive process, if you will, to what they call in the pop culture, modern Gnosticism, the Demiurge, also called Rex Mundi, also believed by a lot of people to be Jehovah. <laughs> and we're going to talk about why, yeah, Jehovah is the Demiurge. Yeah, Jehovah is Rex Mundi. Yeah, Jehovah is Sophia. They're the same. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, anyway, but Demi means half or partial. Urge is from the Proto Indo uh, Proto Indo European root erg, which is to tie or bind. Interestingly enough, I don't know exactly how that plays into the word demiurge, but in Greek, mm. it specifically means a public servant and a public work. Interestingly enough, he's a subordinate workman employed in the creation of the world. Well, that's a big weave in and of itself because Vulcan. Hephaestus, the blacksmith, Jesus, the carpenter, Pata, the potter, Lou of the Irish mythos, skilled in many arts, Thoth, the god of writing, Agmios, the Irish Hercules, who is the giver of eloquence. It goes on and on. That's a, a, a thing to look for in the pattern recognition is like the craftsman element that we're talking about. Uh, it's the same. It's where this idea of the demiurge comes from is that one of the aspects of the Trinity is the make concept mm -hmm. even in the uh, the bible isaiah chapter 45 it says in verse 9 woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots does the clay taste does the clay say to him who forms it what are you making <laughs> so we're talking about a potter uh this is in the same uh, just a chapter pr prior in isaiah this is what the Lord says, your redeemer and creator. I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens. Who was with me when I made the earth? So we have this idea of Ptah shaping the world on the potter's wheel. This is an Egyptian thing. This is translating directly into the book of Isaiah, talking about Jehovah creating the world out of clay, so to speak, that we're clay forms. It's an allegory, though. It shows up in modern times in the think about this. So who is the if, OK? So in Isaiah, they're saying he's your redeemer and creator, right? He's the potter and he's the redeemer. Well, the word pare means savior. This is a word that is in Buddhism and Hinduism. Pare. So who's the savior? Harry Potter? Harry <laughs> Potter? Could it be? He's the oh, savior, is no. he not? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. It's there. Somebody wow. knew. That's... I don't think that that was something. I don't think that story was scribbled on uh, some napkins in a uh, in a restaurant, as oh. we're told. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, that I think that it's maybe a concoction of more than one thinker. But who knows? I don't know. 333. Ooh, I, I love I mean, that link that you put together. But uh, when you said the public servant, I want to throw this at you. What do you think? It, it could be in reference public servant as a demiurge because it's kind of an egregore created by society, by a victim society that needs some kind of um, thing to be a victim to. So it could be, you know, a lot of people say there's a they and a them and the Illuminati and all this stuff. And yeah, they're sure there could be them. But I think also they exist if they do, because the society kind of wants it. They want that show. They need a victim 
narrative to get behind so they can engage in their escapism. You know, like we need to, we need to hate somebody. So you're nailing it, dude. So in that way, the Demiurge is a public servant because they are employed. (laughs) That makes, I never thought about that before. When I heard you say public servant being we're, I'm serving you by being your boogeyman. Yeah. And this, that's exactly what I thought of when I heard you say that. On the uh, Forbidden News, uh, Forbidden Knowledge News show, that was it, right? You Something totally, like yeah, you totally nailed it, though. That's great. I'm going to incorporate that rhetoric. I never really thought about that. Demiurge is a public servant because he's doing the service of giving God. us the excuse to be victims. Exactly. Because <laughs> seriously, how can you not see that the idea, the world and nature is some kind of fallen, twisted creation of an evil, sub-creating oh God. God? Is there any narrative more complete to the victim consciousness than that? Mm. There is mm. no escape. The world is a prison. <laughs> prison Planet TV. Buy my shirts. Oh, my God. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, just go for a walk in the woods and you'll that'll be dispelled in five minutes. You know, it's crazy. It is super crazy. But, I mean, uh, Karen and I just went hiking recently because she came to New Jersey to visit her man, Cody. Shout out to Cody in the chat. Um, and we went to go. We got to go hiking. We were on this mountain kind of. It's not It's a Connecticut mountain, you know, but there was vultures right above us because we were so high. And then right below us, we could see him. And, you know, you just look at that and it's just so beautiful. How can you think we're in some kind of trap? Those vultures ain't in a trap. How are we in a they're, trap? They're not bots. Yeah. yeah. Birds are fake. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. I had enough no. of that one. Yeah, yeah. You hadn't heard about that one? No, I've had. I've okay. just had enough. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's just Guys. one of my friend's favorite funny conspiracies. But, yeah. It's funny because it's supposed to be a joke, but Mm -hmm. it's like it was created by somebody who was making fun of the conspiracy culture parroting, you know, literally parroting. We're talking about birds. (laughs) These birds are spreading fake ideas, (laughs) but someone will see a birds is fake meme and be like, oh, yeah, because they are already primed to believe it because they're in a simulation. They're Mm. already simulating. Yeah. And conspiracy culture. You guys. (laughs) They could believe birds are fake, but they still think that these experimental medical serums are healthy. I won't say any more YouTube. <laughs> but a little more on the Demiurge, the craftsman, the maker, the generator. This is the savior of all the various versions of savior mythos from the ancient world. The ancient writer Porphyry says Mithra, as well as the bull whom he slays, is the Demiurgus and Lord of Generation. And then Bacchus and Her- Bacchus and Hercules are both, and one one precedes the other, but they're just a, it's like a rebranding of the same idea. Uh, they're both described as self-produced generator and producer of all things, father of time. That's from Orpheus. So I know that Disneyfication of mythology has led people to think that you know Hercules is that type of version but hercules is self-produced generator and producer of all things so is thor same thing it's really when you get to the bottom of astrotheology we're talking about the psychodrama in the mind of god and all the characters are actually aspects of divinity or aspects of the universal psyche so they're all one they all resolve down into three and then those three resolve down into one always and then when you say they all resolve into three, what are the three they resolve into? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
depends on the version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's three forms, one God or thrice great as Hermes Trismegistus okay. is called. Yeah. It is t- allegory for nature. Mm-hmm. You have the creator, destroyer, and then the redeemer. Mm-hmm. But the thing about, or the savior, the thing about the destroyer is that the destroyer is also the regenerator. And we've messed that up in modern times and almost like created a fourth corner of it all. Interestingly enough, we have four seasons now when in the ancient world, it was more just spring, summer, winter. They didn't have the concept of fall per se, but spring, summer, winter is creator, destroyer, redeemer. And, and maybe not exactly in that order correlate correlated wise. But the point about the destroyer is that it's also the regenerator because you have to have the destruction of winter for the new life to generate. And then when you lose sight of the allegory that this is actually about, that's when you start to believe in like, oh, that oh, the devil, the mm, devil. Mm. But what is Jehovah? And we're going to talk about that more. Like, what is Jehovah? What does the name of God mean? It's talking about life. It's existence. It's all that is. It's a self-existing life force energy that is the ordering principle of cosmos. And thus, thus the Satan or the opposite or the opposer or adversary to existence is non-existence. Well, as Young, as Young tells us in his really amazing work, Seven Sermons to the Dead, which will give you a way better comprehension of uh, useful Gnosticism than, you know, modern pop culture Gnosticism. In my opinion, he talks about the pleroma, which is the all, everything combined with its opposite in one big soup. And that in that state, which is the prima materia or the original, you know, waters of chaos, Everything uh, cancels out with its opposite, except for power or effectiveness and existence. You can put in the same category, because if you put existence with non-existence, well, non-existence can't do anything to existence. Ineffectiveness can't do anything to effectiveness to cancel it out. Power cannot be canceled out by non-power. You see what I mean? So there's this primal generative principle or this primacy of existence something self-existing that can only ever exist and this philosophically to me is sound that's why i don't believe in the in the beginning ex nihilo thing i look at it as a eternal cyclical you know ever like whatever existed always did i, I that makes yes. more sense to me yes but you're asking about the trinity there's it's all over the place and in some places you might not expect like because we're talking about the uh, the the Lord of the Seculum or the Neros or whatever version of this cycle of reincarnation of the deity, like Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. Vishnu is the savior. That's Brahma, creator, Shiva, destroyer, Vishnu, savior. And then get this, the V and F interchange between languages. Mm-hmm. And so Vishnu, Vishnu, Jesus fish, Jesus is mm. the savior. <laughs> the bishops, B and V also interchange. Bishops are the little fish of Vishnu, baby. <laughs> like just no, that's why the Pope has got his fish hat, in my opinion. I was just gonna uh, say that. Adam has three sons. Adam is the first man. He's the father of humanity. He's the creator in the allegory. He's got three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Then Noah also, he's the father of humanity because all of humanity bottlenecks through Noah, right? He's the reincarnated Adam. They even called Jesus Christ the last Adam. Mm-hmm. Noah is 
father to Shem, Ham, and Japhet. You have Jehovah, of course, father, Holy Ghost, son, that version. You have Manu in the Hindu mythology. He's the lawgiver. He's their version of, he's a version of Noah, three sons and uh, three muses, which are sometimes five or nine in order or in number. Uh, you have Sophia, who's also called Pistis, which by the way, is n- not that different than Pisces fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her three emanations or three versions of herself are Sophia Eve and Zoe in the you know Gnostic creation mythos. And then they also give you the Adam of light in the Gnostic creation text. Adam, Eve, and the beast are emanations of the Adam of light. And then there's the Jehovah, Satan, Jesus, Trinity. It just goes on. But like you, you find this all throughout the uh the mythos. And then to talk more about the craftsman element, I guess I already brought up Bacchus and Hercules being self-produced. I already brought up Pata with the potter's wheel. Um, what else? <laughs> well, I know I've just been on a roll. <laughs> oh, you're fine. That's great. <laughs> I think we'll we'll just leave it there in terms of the craftsman side, and and because we're getting a little long in the the stream, and we'll just get to the, wrapping up the uh, the simplest simple misunderstanding about the demiurge that is that the demiurge is some kind of like separate existing existing evil thing that is out to torment and hurt us or enslave us or loose us. And yet the, the real God is separate or different than the demiurge when really, as we just kind of demonstrated and we're going to demonstrate really clearly right now that the three in one aspect is right there wrapped up in the name of Jehovah. So, Jehovah is Yad Hey Vav Hey. These four letters actually transliterate in English as YHVH or JHVH, but there's not a real one to one, and then especially historically speaking, transliteration from Hebrew letters to English letters. And so then this tetragrammaton actually pre exists the, the Jews. In fact, like all of the Kabbalistic stuff seems to have. Uh, popped up in about 13th century Spain. It's not even that old. Holy smokes! <laughs> it's not old at all, actually. I mean, it is, but as its own, it's as it's as a unique system, it's ve- it's not old. It, but it comes from ancient stuff. Uh, it's all it's all Judaism, anyway. Because <laughs> oh you, I E U E, is one of the ways you transliterate the. Tetragrammaton. It can be I E U E, which would be pronounced U, or the I of the Yod can be a J, so thus Jew, or it can be J U V E, Yuv, or Juve, or J O V E, Jove. It goes on and on, but like this four letter name can be all kinds of names. Like, uh, U Potter is Jupiter, the father U, father Jew, father Tetragrammaton, and the last, but like the real, in my opinion, slam dunk transliteration is the YHVH could instead be I-E-V-E, which is Eve. Eve. <laughs> Eve. Yeah, man. That's mm. Eve. And then yeah. Hebrew, just Eve means life, existence. Exactly. And so this is a quote from the Nag Hammadi creation story. And it's Eve. It says, Eve is the first virgin, the one without a husband, 
or her first offspring. This is important. This is where the idea of immaculate conception comes from. It is not because there's somebody in history who actually had an immaculate conception. In my opinion, you know, (laughs) believe what you want, but it's because in the mythos, the first cause, the first generation is self-generated, that it's like a parthenogenic thing. Eve, the first virgin, the one without a husband, bore her first offspring. It is she who served as her own midwife. For this reason, she is held to have said, it is I who am the part of my mother, and it is I who am the mother. It is I who am the wife. It is I who am the virgin. It is I who am pregnant. It is I who am the midwife. It is I who am the one that comforts pains of travail. It is my husband who bore me. And it is I who am his mother. And it is he who is my father and my Lord. It is he who is my force. What he desires, he says with reason. I am in the process of becoming. Yet I have borne a man as Lord. So this is the divine androgyne. This is the hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite. Hermes Aphrodite. Mother, father. This is the ark. The ark wisdom. Goddess of wisdom. Arga which is the masculine generative principle and the feminine generative principle put together. And that's the boat, the hull, the hole, the yoni, and the mast, the phallus, the male power generation. And on that arc rides Noah or, or Upnapishtim or whatever version of the flood mythos that you want. And they're all over the world, even in allegedly, even in Mexico before the Spaniards came. And that this character is the god of wine or the one riding the boat is the one he has a drinking problem like Noah or he he teaches people how to create wine because he's Bacchus, Bacchus, the lord of the vine, who was worshipped in Egypt as a serpent called Eve. (laughs) Bacchus is Eve because it's the the mother, father, son in one. It's a three in one. So really, when you boil it down. The savior is the uh, the savior version, the, the middle part of the Trinity, the Mercury figure is also called Eros because it's the spark. This is the divine spark. It's your life force, the spark within you that is your savior, your life force, your charge. And especially in how it gives you some kind of emotional charge one way or the other as a navigatory power or principle that lets you know what it is you truly want and what truly aligns with your conscience, which is the, again, coming from God, the life force, the divine spark. That divine spark is called Eros because it is the erotic love between mother and father that is our preserver. It is the savior of humanity, because if there was no spark of attraction between mom and dad, you wouldn't be here. be here. It's just like that. It's so that's where it's useful is like, it's an allegory for you got to make babies be fruitful and multiply. Right. That's great. But when you get all crazy with it and like believing in <laughs> fairy tales as something literally true, and you're going to fight people over it, we have ourselves some really dumb problems here that are unnecessary. Yep. Yeah. Brings us back to what Sharon and I talk about all the time, which is division. And one thing I would think that you should add to your lovely, I love the the knowledge that you can spit out in such a short amount of time. And um, one thing you should add with the whole wine thing is don't forget the blood of Jesus is wine. People drink it in church every Sunday, you know, 
Exactly, because Jesus is Bacchus. Yeah. Jesus is Bacchus, and that whole bread and wine thing comes from ancient Buddhism, because as aesthetics, part of their deal was uh, veganism, essentially, that they practiced like non non aggression, non violence principle, which is like fine. If people want to practice that, so their their sacrifices became instead of blood sacrifices, they would sacrifice blood, uh, bread, and wine to the deity. So that's a that, that that's not a Christian thing, as Reverend <laughs> Robert Taylor says. The different paganism and Christianity are about as different as six and half a dozen. <laughs> Same difference. And so this whole like immaculate conception thing, the misunderstanding of that has really thrown humanity for a lot of loops, in my opinion, because you'll see over and over again, as you look through history, this type of uh harrimism, if you will, where people are people that may have been actual really existing uh, individuals in the historical truth end up being given like mythological characteristics for one reason or another. I'm looking, let me pull up my notes on this. Cause it's actually pretty, uh, it's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, please do. <laughs> well, I want to throw in really quick. What I'd like to say is even if you do believe in an immaculate conception and you're a Christian and you believe this guy was born and crucified and he had this message to give you, do you think he'd want you arguing with other people online or bothering them about their point of view? You know, you think that's where you want to be when Jesus comes back to quote Joe dirt, you know, it's like, come on, man, even if all that's true, just be cool, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we got to understand that like a lot of what is believed as dogma is all mixed up with allegory. Like (laughs) this is a, a great quote from Higgins. In our endeavors to explain the ancient mythoses, great care must be taken not to confound two cases which must be, in their nature, extremely difficult to separate. The ancient mythological or allegorical histories and the idle stories invented by the Greek or Roman priests of comparatively modern times to conceal their ignorance, and this is so very difficult a matter, that our success... uh, exert whatever care we may must always be attended with considerable doubt. So basically, you know, there's a lot, this, where this all coming from is way, way old, like beyond the veils of perception in the ancient historical world. And then since then, just as we see the Disneyfication of mythology now, or like Marvel comics version of Thor or et cetera. Right that that has been going on for quite some time. <laughs> and oh, yes. Quite some time. It's not new to the modern age. There's been centuries of it. But to talk about the immaculate conception part a little more. So as I mentioned, at the end of each age or seculum, the, or a 608-year cycle, the firstborn of the supreme being or the first cause was to incarnate in human form. And this is like what Krishna was, exact, uh, for example, or... Jesus Christ mm-hmm. prophesied in the book of Isaiah, even though the book of Isaiah is clearly talking about Cyrus, who is a Lord of the seculum of that age for Persia. Then they just attribute all of those qualities to Jesus because guess what? It's all the same thing because the we're cycle. talking about the same concept. It's a cycle. And so in, uh, in when a man was an eminent benefactor of mankind, so to speak, some kind of like, 
great person who made great changes for the world or like helped society. A lot of times this title or this story would be exoterically applied to him in reverse. But then like the priests would know that this is actually mythos referring to the great cycles. But examples of people who the, this attribution of a of a being born of the first cause or a reincarnation of Eros or a reincarnation of the, you know, the savior, if you will, the son of God. You have Plato, Pythagoras, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. You know, it uh, mm-hmm. obviously <laughs> it goes on and on. Ver- versions of this said to be born this way. Uh with the shadow of Apollo impregnating their virgin mothers, if you will. <laughs> but it it's so funny. Uh, it's so funny because then power-hungry people start to spread this idea about themselves, like Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar. There's Scipio Africanus of ancient Rome, who actually got caught in the act of fabricating this tale of a, of an immaculate conception and was banished over it. So there's that. And then you have in an apocryphal, I, I haven't got the receipt on this. So I would love it if someone out there out there could help me find it. But there is accounts from authors like Higgins in the early 1800s where they seem to have had access to some apocryphal scripture, like, you know, a different gospel, essentially, that's not part of the canon that I can't find currently. I don't know. Maybe it's been destroyed or put you in a vault somewhere. You don't know the somewhere. name of it either, right? And H- yeah, Higgins doesn't give the name of it, but he basically tells a story of the mother of Mary, Anna. By the way, Anna means the year. This is Janus, mm-hmm. Janus. Mm-hmm. It's the year. <laughs> Anna, the mother of Mary, was impregnated by a serpent that lied on her while she was asleep. That's Apollo, Apollo, Pythias Apollo. It's the sun god. The sun is the serpent. It makes the circuit of the zodiac. It's a anyway. <laughs> she's also apparently she was only three or four years old when the Holy Ghost in the form of a serpent crept over her while she was asleep and impregnated her. Yikes. So this is even though that story is no longer a part of uh, Catholicism, they still call Mary the mother and daughter of God. And that's why, because she's actually an immaculate conception too, mm-hmm. oddly enough, because Mary is Eve, is Bacchus, is Jesus. They're all the same. The mother is her son and her husband simultaneously. That's the mythos. Uh, it's Trinitu. always been the mythos. Yeah. Trinitu, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's more or less the information I want to um, you know, put out for now, unless there's specific questions. Yeah. Um, I was just reading because earlier I was like looking into just what Gnosticism kind of is about. And I read I read something and maybe I'll just read the quote of it. It says it's from this website called Gnosis.org. And the page is what is Gnostic? I guess that's the description. What is what is a Gnostic? So it says the difficulty in defining Gnosticism is not entirely of recent origin. As early as 1910, a small book was published in London that in many ways foreshadowed foreshadowed current trends, including the difficulties in definition. The title of the work was Gnosticism, colon, The Coming Apostasy. The author, a certain D.M. Panton, 
was an anxious defender of Christian orthodoxy, which he felt was menaced by an emerging Gnostic revival. I could read more, but basically, um, I just wanted to ask you to um, let us know your thoughts on what was so threatening to Christian orthodoxy um, about Gnosticism. Well, they're claiming to have a unique system, Christianity. They're claiming that all of this is from the literal existence of Jesus Christ at a specific time in history when there were there, the Christ existed, the crucified savior existed all over before Christianity. So the key though, like the biggest threat about it and why I'm so interested in getting to the bottom of some of the historical elements here and also exposing a lot of history as astrotheology mm-hmm. is because it might not seem like it today, but if you ever ask yourself, how did we get nations how did it ever come to pass this feudal system? The feudal system is really a development of monasticism. The monks, the therapeutes, the give all your stuff to the group mm. and we'll decide mm. who gets what. Yeah. If you will, you know, the tithes, tithing, mm. uh, give 10% to the taxes, uh, kick, it, kick it up the chain. How did we ever get into this position where this is just normal? And you dig down and the root of the authority of the current systems of authority is predicated on mosaic history being literal. And it's not, it's not literal (laughs) there. You know, (laughs) you're going to get called an anti-Semite for some of the stuff we talked about in this conversation. Well, being a Semite is predicated on descendants, descendants from Shem. There was no Shem. There's no such there's no such thing as a Shemite or a Semite. It doesn't exist. And a lot of the, like actual racism in the world, like that people with dark skin are cursed or evil, is predicated on them being descendants of Ham. Ham means darkness or black. Well, they're, they're not because there was no Ham. And whenever you look at the monarchies of the world, particularly Europe, but this applies to the East as well. And the East is the East version of feudalism is way more brutal and older. It's had longer to roll. They're all predicated on descendants from being descendants of one of the sons of whoever the flood hero was for them. Mm. So when I say mosaic history, I'm not talking about even just Moses. I'm talking about Moshe, the word that means initiate. A history given to us by the initiates of the, whatever this bottleneck system was coming from the College of Alexandria at one point seeming to congregate their congeal and then spread out like tentacles. Now, what they were grasping at and using to leverage their idleness into a form of rulership seems to have been a derivation of a actually useful system based and predicated on nature and helpful things like knowing when to plant seeds and when to harvest and how to navigate the seas across long distances, all kinds of great stuff. But then it gets perverted from allegory into history. And then they don't even, they don't even realize that that's what happened with their forefathers. And they believe they drink the Kool-Aid and it's just (laughs) getting uglier, not better. Mm. It's getting uglier. And yeah, it's basically like we're looking at the origins of 
corporation as a system. And, you know, we're looking at the origins of the legal fiction. We're looking at the origins of the medical mafia. We're looking at all of, it seems like the source of all of the unnecessary evils inflicted upon humanity by humanity seem to pretty much come from the same spot. Uh, Oddly enough, like it's clear now though, it's clear now that, that medicine as it's practiced by the allopathic model and the academic uh, college system, all of this stuff is like a weird religious cult, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. scientism, the science trademark. It's clear now that all this seems very cult-like and religious. And that's because it actually is. It, is. <laughs> it actually yeah. comes from a, a freaky cult. So yeah, like, you know, look into spiritual things, people be discerning. Don't just believe stuff. Take it on. Don't take things on faith. Take things on how they show up in nature that you can actually experience with your senses. And don't make claims beyond that. And everybody would get along so much better. You know? Yeah. You think you yeah. said it all. Yeah. And, uh, and I, go, ahead. Go, ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say would... really quickly, my mind was kind of blown because no matter what I think I learned about history, this whole thing about the Library of Alexandria, I really am wondering what the burning of it was. Was it people getting together and doing a good thing and trying to put a stop to all these crazy mind controls? You know, maybe it was a win uh, for the good guys in history and they turned it into all oh, these, you know, barbarians. They burned the Library of Alexandria. Well, maybe if that's what that was, I'd want to burn. Never it. forget six million scrolls. Yeah. Six million scrolls were burned. I think it's a, it's a holocaust, essentially. <laughs> hey, it's a burning that's what a holocaust means oh. <laughs> it's a burnt offering yeah i think it's a burnt offering i think it's probably like just a reshuffling of the center of power over to rome yeah. and then we get also to coincide that with a nice story about how look what they're trying to hurt me and <laughs> Probably they didn't really lose much or anything. I don't know. I honestly don't know about a lot about the burning itself, but I wonder if that's like a Holocaust event and a a nice victim narrative for the, you know, the purveyors of victim narratives. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Go ahead, Sharon. Well, okay. I have a couple of things to say. Um, One of them was that it was a synchronicity that you said corporatization has really been the um the reason for all the kind of the madness that's going on right now in the world because i recently sent something to brandon i had some thoughts about something i sent him and i said something to that effect to him so that was total sync um the other thing is that this book that i read and i think it was i i heard about it through a crow episode it's called the secret society of moses um this was very enlightening to me and caused me to um, really, really uh, look at the Bible in a different way um, in a not take it so literally way because of um, it, maybe that came over time. But at first it was like really questioning, like, what is going on in these scriptures? Because um, it brings up the fact that um when they they talk about Moses dying, it never talks about where he's buried or anything about that. They just like 
Moses died and like end of story. They never talk about his sons ever again. And uh, so it's kind of like, well, did did his sons get like, did his sons like conveniently like leave the scriptures and then become part of this um, priest class um, and move into the uh, the area of where Rome is and become these popes and whatnot. It was just very interesting uh, topic, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know a lot about that particular book, but uh I'm kind of of the of the persuasion that there was not actually a Moses. Right, right. Yeah. Eventually I realized, you know, the astrotheological stuff and how some of these people probably weren't even like even Jesus probably wasn't real, you know. And that's Or okay. if he was, <laughs> if he was, most of what we've been given as the story about him ends up being mythos and not right. true. Exactly. You know. Exactly. So, and at the end of the day, I hope it's clear, like, I don't mind if people believe things that they can't know, but to just like, let's get real about what we can know and what we can't know. And I personally think that Jesus is great. Awesome philosophy. Oh, yeah. I I don't really see anything wrong with the teachings of Jesus overall. There's lots of good stuff there, especially read from the lens of like, (laughs) <laughs> honestly it's like they put a lot of the antidote to the uh the system almost like in a karmic sense giving the way out to the people that, that are being entrapped by it because when you read the bible and the words of jesus through the lens of corporation it says repeatedly god does not respect persons and a person is a word referring to a corporate entity or an artificial a, a simulated identity simulation mm-hmm. back to that whole idea mm-hmm. so and there's plenty of wisdom in there. Mm-hmm, in my opinion, it actually makes it more powerful to look at it as one of the most recent versions of something our ancient, ancient ancestors, people that built the pyramids, people that built megaliths like Gebekli Tepe that we have no idea where it came from that or how they did it. Like, how did they learn how did they create the system of the constellations? How did they learn exactly. how to sail across the sea whenever all they mm-hmm. had to start with was theoretically, you know, assuming that humans even started just like with dirt and, and the caves and, and <laughs> barely even figured out fire for millions of years. Who knows? You know, for all we know, right. humanity has always been here and mm-hmm. there isn't really a beginning to look at. There's mm-hmm. just a rise and fall of levels of consciousness. Right. Uh, I I would be happy to look at it that way, but obviously the good things about the the mythos come from a heightened level of consciousness because you're able to see patterns and then allegorize those patterns in ways that are comprehensive enough that you could be talking morally, you can be talking about nature, you could be talking about how your body functions, you could be talking about astrology and Mm -hmm. three other things all wrapped up into one parable. That's incredible. That's such a high level of consciousness. And then at the same time, have it all encoded numerically to have Mm. an internal consistency with math. Mm. There's something incredible about that beyond what most people could even conceive of creating in their life. There's a divine inspiration to that. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. But let's just not get all 
crazy about dogma and also mm-hmm. not accept victim consciousness and narratives about original sin and a fallen world and, and a, a, a demiurge and a loose farm. And it just pops up over and over again. It's a perennial thing. You see it in the new age. You see it in, you know, the, the white light trap, the, the gray aliens are waiting after you reincarnate and they're impersonating Jesus and dead grandma. And if you go oh into the light, you God. have to, if you go into the light, Oh no, you're going to, have to live again. <laughs> God That's forbid. terrible. I would hate that. I would hate to continue to exist because when you really boil it down and I've asked some of these types, like a uh, uh, Cody McCoskey, what do you think? I, I directly ask him this. What do you, think? I kind of almost regret having him on because it was like, so, so fucking depressing, but like, you know, you, you oh my face- gosh, I was thinking when I was sorry to interrupt, but when I, first, when I was hearing some of his stuff, I was like, this guy is totally victim-y. Like, I don't feel like listening to He must to have a really mean all. wife. His wife is probably terrible. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm just, I don't know his wife. Maybe she's cool. You know, but maybe he feels in his personal life extremely victimized all the time or looshed all the time. I don't know. I didn't mean to bring up somebody and talk shit on them. I like Howdy as a person. I just don't. I wouldn't want to be in the place where he's currently at. And I wouldn't want to get married to the philosophy that he's now married to through his books and promoting them. Because it kind of digs a hole that's hard to get out of. Because if you were to retract, you'd have to like, you know, put out the retraction about all your books now. Mm-hmm. But yes. it is what it is. Like, I, I have no hate for him or just I actually there's a lot I like about him. But I wouldn't want to be in the shoes where when I ask him the question, what does it mean to get out of the illusion? What would it mean to be out of the t- soul trap? How do I what what would that look like? And the answer is essentially if there is any identification left at all with anything, you know, if you can finish the phrase of uh, I am this or I have any experience of anything at all, then you're still in the illusion. If there's anything left to be experienced, oh you're in illusion. So let me par- let me paraphrase that into simple layman's terms. The only way to get out of the illusion or the simulation is to not exist. So you're non-existence asking for isn't you're asking even for oblivion. real. You're asking for oblivion. You're asking for something that doesn't even exist. Exactly. <laughs> it's so silly. You know, it's actually Satanism. It's the definition of Satan. Not I'm, I'm not calling him Satanist, wow. but if Satan is the opposite of Jehovah and Jehovah is life or Eve, it's existence. Then the opposite of that is non-existence. So mm-hmm. if you're seeking in like the Buddhist sense of I got to escape samsara, if there's anything left to experience or any experience or left, then I'm still in samsara. You're asking for oblivion, essentially. That's what you want. Mm. You want to return to a state of no sensory input. Wow. And then you're out of the, then you're somehow out of the simulation. Well, that's not what I want. I happen to like it here. And I happen to have noticed that the more I appreciate it here, the more awesome it is here. And so I'd like to see how far we can go with that story rather than sinking deeper and deeper into the, I'm being loosed. I'm being harvested. I'm the victim of vampires, et cetera. You know, I'm not Um, into it. I'm not into it. I have a, Quick question for you, and then Brandon can ask his or does make his comment. I just want to. You keep saying this word "louche," and I am a totally under the rock person. I I don't know some terminology these days. So, can you please explain what you mean by that? Louche is a term coined by Robert Monroe of the Farsight Institute, with his whole weird like hemi sync uh, oh, books on tape, where you okay. know 
that. So he had an experience where he like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do it justice, but to put it simply, he had an experience where he thought he encountered the, the, the archons, archons being the, uh, we didn't even talk about archons, but the archons are like the aeons that are under the demiurge, according to the, this particular system. And it's fascinating because archon in Greek just means a prince. There were nine illustrious magistrates or princes uh, that ruled in Greek city-states. And it's funny because we have a nine magistrate system today in the Supreme Court. Magistrate, by the way, which means judge, also could mean God, lowercase g. So these archons are often associated with the planetary gods. Ye are gods. What we have missed out on is that... uh, the planetary gods and their mythoses are all actually part of the Trinity or the one God. And that most of them like Mars or Jupiter were, or even Saturn were names of the sun before they got attributed to the luminaries that we call planets Mm. oddly enough, but that's Mm. a side weave. The point being that Luche is a term that Monroe coined to refer to the spiritual essence that is extracted out of humans by these archons or these gray aliens by creating the circumstances in which a human suffers, they're able to extract louche, which apparently feeds these invisible interdimensional super evil, bad archons that are hurting (laughs) me and they're hurting me by making me do bad stuff and self-destruct and be in a fear state. And the more they can keep me in a fear state, the more they can eat my fear energy. And that's called loose. It's so stupid. Okay. Now weird. that's just become like a, that's just become a catch all term for energy harvesting or energy vampirism getting mm. looshed. Oh, you know, as a, as a verb looshing, there is something to it that, you know, actual archons or rulers of the current, system of the world do lose people with like, you know, mass shootings and stuff. There is an energetic harvesting that comes out of inflicting fear, suffering, panic, etc., on people. And energy vampirism in a one-to-one sense between human beings is also a very real thing. So looshing is real. That's why I use the word, but I do I do I think that looshing happens in this reality. Yes. Do I think the purpose of this reality is to harvest loosh from all humans? And that's the whole reason it is here. Definitely. I don't think that. No way. And do you spell it L-O-O-S-H? Allegedly. Okay. uh, It's a made up word. Yeah. You call the people who uh, gather this loosh. Loosh The they or the them. Oh, loosh bags. (laughs) It's the trans devil. They, they are doing it. They, them are doing it. Obviously, loose bags. <laughs> no, we're the loose bags because we're the ones holding it. We're the, ve- we're the vessels bag. of loose. They're draining our loose bags. Oh so man, funny dude. One thing I want to thank you. I, I did uh, do stand-up comedy for seven years, and I plan to get back into it. Um, Someday. So, yeah, I just didn't look like this, so my act has to change. You know, it's like the you old need act your little profit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mannequin thing or whatever. He yeah, is. I'm thinking about doing some of that uh, ventriloquism. But um, what I was going to say was uh, when we were talking about the non-existent thing, non-existence, I think so. 
and this is stuff that I don't like argue about. This is like when we ponder, right? What can be what you were talking about earlier, you know, I could think about these metaphysical ideas. I think that the reason it could be attractive to people is that maybe when, if we do have a higher self, you know, and we raise our consciousness and we kind of uh, maybe move out of this realm or move out of just the physical or whatever it is, right? We're energy again. Maybe it is kind of a non-existence that we feel because I think when we're here in this physical, uh, we're kind of using our senses to get around and experience it and make our decisions and stuff. And maybe when we go back to energy or whatever it is, that kind of goes away. So what they're doing is it's kind of like what the libertarians do. They point to the right way, but they don't tell you how to get there. Like they'll say, Oh, you, you know, you have to live according to like natural law or the golden rule and all this stuff, but they don't tell you how to clean up your act to where you actually want to do that. And it's a joy to live that way every day. You know, it's so, it's the same kind of thing that I see They're They're like, oh, it's non-existence. We got to like turn off our senses when it's like, no, I think it's something that maybe just happens eventually it could. But uh, again, with like, all these big ideas, people will try to invert them and put them in backwards. Well, when you look at the whole simulation culture and media, it does seem like maybe the whole draw towards non-existence is a desire to return to a simpler time psychologically speaking and that's why there are so many surrogate wombs being offered to humanity in vr and you know live in a pod pod people and just make everything smaller and smaller and smaller i think maybe it has to do with a psychological desire to return to the safety and comfort of mother's womb essentially mm, mm, yeah yeah i like that 100 you know the the irony is i think we are in mother's womb right now <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that i like if you want to know what i That's what i kind of think is going on is i think that we're in a giant we're, we're in the womb right now dreaming of ourselves and then you know we die slash are born and then that's a womb and then and then we die slash are born and then that's a womb and i think it's like a fractal uh, wombs all the way down that type of deal but that is not provable but you know it would match the it it would reflect properly to what i see in nature if it was right. the case yeah As right so below and now you know <laughs> right and it's funny because that's um that's kind of a sink because i posted something in my chat group about uh in the mother's womb were two babies and one asked the other do you believe in life after delivery and like their <laughs> little discourse that they had you know, and one, you know, one's like, no, there can't be, there can't be, you can't know what's going to happen in there, you know, and like, no mother's out there and she's going to be, you know, good to us. And she's this, that, and the other. And, and, you know, it's, it's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And that's the only version of like simulation in your body somewhere else that I could get behind. Right. Because who knows? I don't know what I was thinking about when I was in the womb, but I was right. there for nine months. Right. Absolutely. I love it. And we're back and now we're back to the womb discussions, the placenta <laughs> gravy. <laughs> placenta gravy, piping hot. Did it take us this long to say placenta? Somebody was I waiting to take a drink. <laughs> Gabe is going to be happy that we said it. You've had Gabe on, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. He was he's awesome. The, he's the man. Love yeah. Rocks. Yeah, for sure, but it's, you guys well, ready to put a bow on this thing? I think so. This has been great. A great episode. 
I had fun. I, I really got a big burst of energy whenever I came on screens with you guys. So I appreciate the, um, the vibrant witness that you provided to instigate a fun flow state for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the space. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time coming on and vibing with us. It was great. I feel like a lot of the stuff you touched on is like basic oversharing stuff that we talk about all the time, which is great. Just the ideas in that, but the new information that you brought to weave into those uh, ideas that we've been pounding is just great. It's really a great addition to our show. Um, You want to plug your stuff one more time? Oh, yeah. Interversepodcast.com is the website. You'll be able to find links to all the places where the show is at, but primarily it's YouTube, Rockfin, Odyssey. I've got a Patreon. There's a premium second hour of the Interverse episodes. There's a free two, three-hour stream every Wednesday, Vibrant at 7 p.m. And uh, Interverse is at Sunday on 7 p.m. So... Basically, you know, twice a week, there's something new coming out. And uh, usually it's live. Sometimes interverses are pre-recorded. But other than that, people can catch me for some sound healing and biofield tuning. If they didn't hear the previous overshare, and I'm sure we talked about that on episode 35. So if you want to learn more about how you can get more in tune with the actual creator, in my opinion, the life force energy, the divine spark that animates your body vessel and learn how to navigate this reality a little more self-directed. And I'm talking like the big self, the higher self that I am, and also improve with health issues that may be a result of stagnant energy. Get in touch. Chance at interversepodcast.com where you can learn more on my website in the interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing page. There'll be videos there where I talk about the process, but again, episode 35 over Sharon probably will give you a good idea. And uh, Sharon, you've had a tuning since we last talked, haven't you? Is that true? How did that work out for you? How did your life change or your health improve or was it terrible? It was, um, I had two of your tunings and both times I was able to make some connections about, um, what was going on in my life at that time. And um, I've been wanting to review the audios again, because I, I think that they're, they transcend time too. So um, I would like to review them and, and just kind of hone in on some other things that I may have missed or that I may have forgotten. But yes, um, thank you very much. They were very helpful to me. Cool. Yeah, very cool. I honestly think i'm better at it now than back then i always feel a little bad like oh you got, you got the old me I, i'm good now <laughs> i'm way better at it now but it is a process of where yes. you know i learn more and more ways to incorporate the various tools at my disposal into the most beneficial ceremony for the person and i'm sure i'll continue to grow and learn with that but it's getting pretty dang good, guys. So I'd love to That's work with anybody out hear. there that wants to to do some energy field balancing. It's awesome. And it's That's fun. Great. It's actually pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. That's it great. Is good times. <laughs> oh, you know what else would I'd like to plug would be my audiobooks with Dylan Sicoccio, author of the Spirit World series. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty details on some of the keys to the system of symbolism and language that 
once you understand the pattern, you'll be able to see it everywhere and know for sure that we're dealing with one thing that spread out like tentacles from Cthulhu, then those books will really do it for you. I highly recommend the spirit world books. I've narrated three or four. Three or four, <laughs> uh, <laughs> three, and I'm working on a. Uh, I'm working on the last one right now, so I recommend it. Jump in. You can get them on Audible. There'll be links to that uh, from my website or in the show description of any recent episodes, or you can just go on to Amazon and search the Spirit World series, and that's W H I R L E D is how world is spelled, like you're whirling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd like to plug that because Dylan's a great dude, awesome. Uh, really awesome researcher and uh, I've had a lot of fun collaborating with him on that stuff. That's awesome. Great stuff. Yeah. I read, um, well, I listened to book one. I have started book two, but um, yeah, I'll have to keep plugging away at it. Yeah. Book three is where it picks up with me as the narrator. Yeah. I can't wait for that one. I kind (laughs) of want to like hurry up and get through book two. I actually haven't listened to the audio books that with the previous narrator. Oh, did you, did you read them? But Oh yeah, I audio? definitely read them. Okay. I definitely Just read them. Honestly, all of them stand alone and could be read independently. I'm as pretty well. sure that's true. But going in order is not bad either. Yeah. But if you had to skip ahead, skipping ahead to three, where I start narrating. I <laughs> can probably do that. I wouldn't mind doing that actually. <laughs> Especially if you've already got a general sense of astrotheology, yeah. book yeah. one will have a lot of review. And yes. if you also, if you've got a pretty good understanding of the legal sorcery, book two will be review again. But you'll mm-hmm. learn things. Don't get me wrong. You'll yeah. learn a lot. It's great no, stuff. For sure. For sure. But okay. It starts getting maybe. extremely good in book three. Okay. Then maybe I'll start book three. Sounds great. All right. July's End is what that one's called. Okay. July's End. So cool. Take a break from my Dune obsession and maybe check <laughs> out. I've been obsessed yeah. with audiobooks. Oh, the Dune audiobooks are pretty good, man. It's a pretty good thing. I, I, I revisit that from time to time along with Lord of the Rings audiobooks. Yeah. Oh, man. We're right in the same boat. Have you ever uh, side, listened to like the other stuff, not just Frank Herbert, but like the Butler and Jihad stuff and all that? No. Oh, okay. Is that by his son, Brian? Yeah, by him and Kevin J. Anderson. It's uh, it's pretty good stuff, but uh, I won't tangle up this whole podcast with it. We can talk about it. <laughs> One of time. my listeners is uh, Brian Herbert's like his brother-in-law or something. Oh, wow. Oh, no. I, heard a, I heard a lot about that guy. Oh, that's really cool. Brandon's been wanting to do a Dune, like just a show with Benjamin Balderson and just chat about Dune. Yeah, Maybe I, I should stuff. do a Vibrant about Dune or something. Yeah, yeah, come on and talk, talk about the vibrant. I'd like that. I'd, yeah. re- I would review the first. We maybe just need to keep it to the first book. Yeah. All right, we're talking shop now. Let's yeah. uh, let's wrap <laughs> up and then we'll talk a little more shop. Well, uh, speaking of talking shop, big shout out to the chat. Thank you guys in the chat. We every time we premiere these shows every Thursday, eight thirty three p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the only time zone. Um, every time we premiere these, how dare nice. you? <laughs> yeah. I was making a joke about that recently. Um, but yeah, so with our lovely chat, we always have such a good time. And uh, our good friend, Joe P, who's been on the show, he always says it's the only internet chat that makes him not want to kill himself. But I, I heard the universe <laughs> chat's really good, too. I've been in there. I've heard that, too. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, it is a good Same chat. kind of vibe. Though, I, so. I, I have a I I healthily apply the band hammer. So oh. we cultivate vibes there. Yeah, so Sharon's like Thor. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
She's like, I err on like, the side of, I don't think I should have banned them, but it's too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Same thing. You could tell. Obviously. So we're, we're happy to have a good chat. We keep it, um, you know, fun, but, um, so check that out. You can always find more about us at more laws, more problems.com. My website that's now 10 years old, so go check that out. Uh, if you want more about the Oversharing Show, click on the Oversharing tab, and you can find us in audio podcast form there. And uh, anything else you want to support us, it's all right there. But you can always support us. The best way is to come here every Thursday night or comment, like this video, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Overshare it with people you think that will benefit. And what do we say to the good people, Sharon? That once you start oversharing, then you totally stop being a Karen. That's right. That's right. So share on. Later, guys. See you next week. Take care. Bye.